If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. I'll be reading from verses 1 through 14. That will be the primary text this morning. As Sister Christie said, she couldn't have set up my message any better. You know, I look around a little bit at what's going on in our society today, and I, have to, I can't do really much but scratch my head. I mean, I watch the news, I see people's thinking on certain issues, and I am, as the Bible says, often vexed. I'm like, this makes no sense. This, this doesn't make any sense how, how people are approaching the issues of life. I mean, it appears that godlessness is on the rise, broken families abound, wrong is glorified, and right is vilified. I mean, just this past week, I don't know if you saw, I didn't watch the Emmys, I don't watch that, but there was a lot of controversy about what some man said at the Emmys. I don't know, did anybody see or hear about that? Well, I'm going to tell you. So we got a few. So he was up there, he was a comedian, and his, his statement was that his, his grandmother don't like to watch white award shows because the only people who think Jesus are Republicans and ex-crackheads. And so, as you can imagine, there was a pretty big backlash of that amongst the faith community. Because it doesn't matter whether I'm a Republican or whether I'm ex-crackhead, there's a lot of people who are not Republicans and certainly not ex-crackheads that thank Jesus for saving our very souls. And so they laugh and they scoff and they mock and, and we say, man, what, what is going on? How, how can we have gotten to this point? And it seems like it's, it's getting worse exponentially fast. And when I say that, it's just rapidly getting worse than it was just 10, 15, 20, certainly 30 years ago. And, and that not just Christianity is, is not as popular as it used to be, but now it's, it's, it's right outright mocked in our society. But as I think about it, I realize we didn't get here rapidly, that it was a slow fade. It's been happening from generation to generation. And so what are we as Christians to do? Do we just throw up our hands and do we say, well, the culture's won, there's nothing we can do, and just let it happen? Do we come to church? Do we get in our holy huddles and insulate ourselves from the world and say, hey, we're not like them? Just they're going, God's coming back, He's going to send them all to hell anyway, they're going to implode, and we're just going to insulate ourselves? Or do we take our influence and do we go out and influence a culture? And I think it's the latter. Recently went to a family reunion on my dad's side of the family. How many of you still have family reunions? I do. Interesting, aren't they? Uh, family reunions are always interesting to me. And that a lot of times in my family reunions, I go in there, I don't know half the people there. And Tammy is always the one I have to later on say, Tammy, now how am I related to that person? And she knows. Somehow she knows. I don't know. And she'll say, it's a shame that you don't even know how you're related to your own family. But it is true. If there's not my dad or somebody like that, I just don't seem to, to remember that. But... The family reunions on my dad's side of the family right now are done by him and a, and a man by the name of Ray Smith. Pastor, you know Ray. And my dad told me recently, he said, I want to see this continue. And he wants to see it continue because it is important that we stay connected to our families. But our family, like many of your families, is one of those families that have a godly component. My dad's mother, Maggie Williams, was her name. Maggie Williams, Maggie Gooch, Maggie Smith. Three, four times widowed, by the way widowed. She was a founding member of the Evangel Assembly of God. She was the one who took me to church when I was a little boy when my mom and dad weren't serving the Lord. But we have a heritage and a generation of faith. But we've kind of watched it wane a little bit with the younger generation. 
And so that family reunion is a way for us to get together, but it's also a way for someone who, to stand up and, and, and talk about the Lord of the family. And we don't want to lose that. And my dad and Ray, they don't want to lose that, and I don't want to lose it. So for the next few minutes, I want to talk just for a few minutes about the power of godly influence. Something that each one of you have where you are. The power of godly influence in your family, the power of godly influence in your workplace, and the power of godly influence in a nation. So I'm going to read Exodus 1, 1 through 14. Before I do, I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to come up here, God, and share your word. God, certainly I'm never worthy to manage and to hold this holy word that is God-breathed from your very breath. But I thank you, Lord, that you make me worthy. I accept it. I thank you for the opportunity to share it, and I ask for your anointing. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus 1, 1 through 14. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtaliah, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Let us multiply, lest they multiply. And it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children. Of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar and brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Now I was reading this. I had been contemplating what I just spoke with you about, about the condition of our society for some time, and I was reading a couple months ago the book of Exodus. And I come across this and there's a couple things that just, it just jumped out on the page at me. There's two particular verses out of that. And how I many, you know, that's the importance of staying, as Christy said, in God's Word. Because you can read it, and you might read it at one time, and it speak one thing to you, and you read it at another, and you're a different point in your life, and it'll speak to you. And something will jump out at you. And I was reading this, and particularly in verse 6, it said, And Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the verse that really jumped out at me and made me just step back in, in my chair as I was reading it and go, hmm, was verse 8. And it said, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And that just got me to thinking and pondering. I said, how in the world did a nation who had had someone do as much as Joseph had done, how in, and, and in my study and research it appears that, that was 100 years, 100, and that sounds like a long time, but it's not from the time Joseph and his generation died to a new king comes to power, how is it that there's a king and he knows nothing about Joseph? He knows nothing about the God of Joseph. And it's not that as, because that as Joseph and his generation died that there wasn't children of Israel. They've always had the children of Israel. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in, in 114 there that they grew, they multiplied. So they were there. 
And surely they were still working in the king's palace. And surely they were still interacting with the Egyptians. But somehow, they knew nothing about Joseph. And I just pondered that for a little bit. And I thought, wonder what happened. Wonder what happened. I mean, to be sure, someone of those new Egypt, uh, uh, Israel children, they had told somebody. I mean, Joseph wasn't that far removed from Abraham. You're talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Some of the greatest stories of the Bible were shared down through that generation. But now we're at a point that nobody knows anything about it. And it just makes me wonder, did the Israelite children who were there, did they continue that through their generation? Did they continue to tell those stories about how Isaac, how Jacob, Abraham was going to sacrifice his son Isaac and God said no? Did they tell about how two cities were destroyed with sin? Did they tell all the great exploits that God had done? Did they continue to pass that down through the generations? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell me. But it does tell me that a king came to power who knew nothing about Joseph. And you say, well, brother, that's not going to happen here in the United States of America. It won't. It won't. Do you know that George Barna, who was a research, researcher of Christian issues, he says that right now this next generation that's coming in, and they're approximately 14 to 15 years old now, is known as Generation Z. Christy, you heard about Generation Z? And he says they will be the most atheistic generation that the United States of America has ever seen. And it won't be but about 20 or 30 years, folks. They're going to be our politicians. They're going to be our judges. They're going to be our business leaders. And then what? Don't think it can't happen here in our nation. Don't think it can't happen in your family, in our workplace. But what are we to do about it? What, did, what, what, was it about, what was it about Joseph? What was it about this man that had such influence in a pagan culture? Keep in mind, he was in Egypt. It was a pagan place. And, and, and we can say, hey, well, you know, I'm a Christian. I can't, get, I can't have any influence in a pagan culture. Yes, you can. Amen. Joseph had tremendous influence in a pagan culture. I don't want to look at some of the characteristics of Joseph, but before I do, and you've got your, um, an outline there if you want to take that out, but I want, to, I want to summarize the life of Joseph before we, we look at the outline so you understand a little bit more about Joseph. Joseph was the 11th born son of Rachel. Okay. He was the 11th born son of Rachel. He was Jacob's favorite son because Rachel was his favorite wife. See, back then, unlike Pastor Don and Sister Carol, you could marry multiple women. Thank God we can't do that no more, Pastor. I, I want, one's all I need. And, but they could. And he had women, he had children by several women. And Jacob was his favorite child by Rachel because that was his favorite wife. And everybody knew he was his favorite child. As a matter of fact, Jacob made a coat of many colors for his son. And he gave it to him. And he, he didn't try to hide that, that Joseph was his favorite son. And so what do you think that did to the brothers? They didn't care much for, for Joseph. And then Joseph had the audacity to say, hey guys, I'm having these dreams. And in these dreams I see, you know, I see 11 stalks, wheat stalks, bowing down to this one wheat stalk. And he said, I also have this dream of the sun and the moon and the stars. And the sun and the moon and the stars bow down. And what do you, that set his brothers off. They're like, oh, so you think we're going to bow to you one day? Is that what you're trying to tell me? That's never going to happen. And I would probably feel the same way. We're not bowing to you. You might be a daddy's boy, but we're not bowing to you. And it got them so upset, they hatched a plan. They said, I tell you what we're going to do, we're going to kill him. And one of the brothers named Reuben said, no, no, let's don't kill our brother. Let's, let's just throw him in a pit. We just throw him in a pit. 
And, and Reuben had every intention to go back and get his brother out of that pit. But before Reuben could get back and get his brother out, the other brothers sold him into slavery to the Ishmaelites. And what they did, they took that fancy coat of many colors and they killed a, an animal and they spread blood all over it and they took that coat back to his dad, Jacob, and said, Joseph has been killed by a wild beast. And, and, and Jacob was beside himself in grief. He thought, Joseph is dead. My favorite son is dead. And so the Ishmaelites, they sell Joseph into slavery, but he ends up in the house of a man named Potiphar. And he rises up to be the head of Potiphar's house. I mean, in full charge. Well, the Bible tells us that Joseph was a young man, a nice-looking man, a well-built guy. And Potiphar's wife decides to come on to Joseph and wants to sleep with him. But Joseph says no. So then one day she grabs his coat and tries to force it. He gets his coat out of it and he says, i got to get out of here and let that be a lesson to us men and to women too, but to us men. That come, the Bible says flee sexual immorality. Don't get yourself in a situation you can't handle. There's a point of no return. You better get out of there. And that's what Joseph did. He got out of there. He said, I'm not doing this. And then what happened? Potiphar's wife goes and says, he tried to rape me. So he ends up in prison. So he's in a pit, now he's in, and then he's at the head of the household, and now he's in a prison. And like Christy said, you might be in the pit, you might be in the prison, but you've got you to trust God. Yeah. You might be in the palace, you might be in prison, but you've got to trust God. He's with you in both places. If you're here, he, his, he don't leave you. He don't leave you if you're in the pit. He's not going to leave you in the prison, and he's not going to leave you in the palace. The question is, will you trust him when you're in the palace? That's where it gets easy. That's where a lot of people are today. I want to tell you a story about some, a group of men we met with yesterday and his story that, that, that illustrates that. But while he's in the prison, he interprets dreams for a cupbearer. Because he, his dream is correct, the cupbearer gets out. And he says, look, Joseph, when I get out, I'll go tell Pharaoh about you, but he don't. And so Joseph is still in prison. But then the Pharaoh starts to have dreams. And the Pharaoh says, he has these dreams, and he has dreams of good-looking wheat stalks and bad-looking wheat stalks, and good, healthy-looking cows and skinny little cows. And he says, I really want to know what this dream means. And the cupbearer says, you know, I know a guy in jail. He can interpret dreams for me, and I bet he can tell you what those dreams mean. And so he tells him. He says, this is what those dreams mean. It means there's going to be seven really good years in Egypt, and in the land, not just in Egypt, but in the land, and seven bad years. You better find you somebody that can prepare for you. And that's what happens. And he goes and gets Joseph. And, and the next thing you know, Joseph rises all the way up. He's second in command. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that uh, Pharaoh said, look, nobody can even lift their foot in this land unless you tell them they can, Joseph. That's how much power he had. So, I mean, we, we like to see people in the palace. You know, people come along and say, wow, look at, how, look at where God's positioned Joseph. That's where I want to be. But they don't want to go through the pit. They don't want to go to the prison. They just want to go straight to the palace. But we have to trust God, whether you're in the pit, whether you're in the prison, or whether you're in the palace. Because I want to tell you this, church, and I'm beginning to see this more as I get a little bit older. Sometimes when we're younger, we can't see it as much. But I can tell you this. God's faithful, and I'm going to do my best to be faithful to him, and i got a palace waiting on me. And I don't have to worry about what's going to happen to that palace. It's there waiting on me. And I'm going to get there because he is going to get me there. And I'm going to be anything I do, he's going to get me into that palace. And he'll get you into the palace. And maybe you think your life is in a pit, but you trust God just as Joseph did. And I'm going to point that out in a few minutes.
So let's look at a couple of characteristics of Joseph. Look at your paper. The Lord was with Joseph. Genesis 39, 2 through 3. It said the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. He was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. The Lord was with Joseph. And that same Lord is with me, and he's with you, if you put your trust in him. Like Christy said, he told his last thing he told his disciples, he said in Matthew 28, 20, he said, go out and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And he said, and lo, I am with you always. Hallelujah. Always. Whether I'm at the height of life, whether or not life is going good. And Brother Steve has got a copy of this outline. Does anybody need one? Anybody need an outline? He'll get it to you. And he's with me always. Don't ever forget that he is with you. We may not sense him. We may not, everything may not be going right in our life because it's certainly not, but he's with you. If you're his, he is with you. Next, the favor of, the, of God rested on Joseph. Look at Genesis 39 and 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The favor of God rested on Joseph. And the favor of God rests with you and it rests with me. Look at Luke 2.14. This is out of the NIV. This is how the NIV reads this. It says, this is the angel of the Lord announcing that, that Christ was coming to earth, that the Messiah was going to be born. He said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. If you're his today, his favor rests on you. And it's not to be used foolishly. It's not because you're going, to have a, you're going to have a nice car or have all these nice things. His favor rests for you to go out and be his image bearer to a lost world. That's what the favor is for. To go out and be his image bearer to a lost world. I didn't give Mark this scripture, but John, John 1.12 says, To as many as he received, he gave the right to be called the children of God. If you've been received, do you understand? I think we need to get a handle on the fact that we are the sons and the daughters of the Most High God. And you think about how you treat your children. When, when Tammy and I were flying off to Israel uh, a few months ago, we had to get all our affairs in order because we were both going to be on an airplane. What happens if that thing goes down? One, I go to heaven, I go to that palace that's waiting on me, but my kids are left to try to sort out everything. So we made sure our will was right because they have an inheritance of ours. But I've got an inheritance. I, you've got an inheritance in spiritual things. He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing to function in the life to come, but more importantly, to function in the life here. He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing. And he had Joseph. Next, Joseph had integrity and lived righteously. Look at Genesis 39.9. This is when Potiphar's wife had come to Joseph. He said, there is no one greater in the house than I. He told Potiphar's wife, he said, look, your, master has, your husband has put a lot of trust in me, and I'm not going to violate it. He said, nor has he kept back anything from me but you. He said, because you're his wife, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You're sinning against someone else. You're sinning against yourself. Your sin is against God. And Joseph said, I'm not going to do that. And that integrity, that's one of the reasons I think that favor of God rested on Joseph was he had that integrity. 
And lastly, Joseph forgave and trusted God's providence. Look at Genesis 15, 19 through 21. So as you get down toward the last of the book of Genesis, you'll find that, guess what? Joseph's brothers did bow to him. Now, they didn't recognize him. And I would encourage you, if you haven't read the story of Joseph in a while, go read that. Genesis chapter 37 through 52. Go read the story about Joseph. His brothers did end up having to bow to him. There was a famine in the land, and they had to come to him. And they didn't recognize him, and they had to bow down before him. But this is what Joseph said to them. Joseph said to them, this is to his brothers, Do not be afraid, for I am in the place of God. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about, as in this day, to save many people alive. Joseph recognized it was two things. He forgave his brothers. Look, look how much power he had, man. He could have been vindictive. He could have put his brothers in jail. He could have had them killed. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that. And then he trusted the providence of God. He said, look, you threw me in the pit a long time ago, and you meant that for evil, but God knew all along where I was going to end up. See, God knows where you're going to end up. He knows where you're going to end up. I wish I knew sometime. Sometimes I look, we might think we do, might wish we could see where he's going to take us, but we might not like it very much. Because sometimes it's not easy. Life is hard. As Sister Christie said, sometimes life is hard. But sometimes, and I know some of you have walked with the Lord a long time can attest to this, it's not sometimes till you've come through it and you look back and say, God was with me right there. He was with me in this time. Yes, it was a time of grief. Yes, it was a hard time, but He was with me. And I sense, you may have sensed His presence even more in those times than you do in the good times. He trusted God's providence. Look at the result of the godly influence that Joseph had in his family. Genesis 50 and 21. Genesis 50 and 21. It says, Now therefore do not be afraid. This is Joseph again talking to his brothers. I will provide you for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Because of Joseph's influence, because of the way he was able to influence a Pharaoh, because of the way he was able to influence a nation, food was there. He could save his entire household. Had it not been for Joseph's godly influence, the whole nation would have perished, we'll see shortly, but certainly his family would have perished. But they could come to him because he had influenced the nation, a pagan nation. His workplace was blessed. Look at Genesis 39 and 5. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer over his house. This is Potiphar. Potiphar's made Joseph overseer of his house. And all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for the Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had and in the house and in the field. Now here's Potiphar, a, a pagan guy, but he recognizes something in Joseph. He knows Joseph is blessed. And because of the favor of God, because of Joseph's trust in God, Potiphar's household and his entire field is blessed. And I think it can be just the same way and should be the same way in our workplaces. I asked Brother Matt to sing, to sing that song. We carry the presence of God with us. And we step into situation, the atmosphere should change. Because it's not me and it's not you, but it's the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit that walks into atmospheres. I mean, I had the opportunity yesterday to go out with Brother Dan and Brother Matt and, and Michael and Chip, and we had a chance to go out into a, a, a home and, and, and minister to some men that it's an it's a addiction recovery home. And I won't speak for them, but I'm going to tell you one thing. When I sat down in that place and those men started to share their stories, and you could sense the brokenness and they were honest, I felt the very presence of God slip up into that place. 
because he's close to the brokenhearted. And I believe that he will change those men's lives. And the atmosphere, to me, the entire atmosphere of that place changed as we begin to talk and as we begin to talk about the Lord. And Dan shared his testimony, what God had done for him. And each one of us shared our testimony. It was powerful. And the atmosphere changed. And it can change in your workplace. It can change in your home. It can change wherever you are when the Spirit of the Lord comes in with you. And He is with you. A nation was saved. Look at, look at uh, Genesis 41 and 36. It says, Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. By Joseph's influence on a wicked king, he said, King, this is what the dream is. You need to get somebody in place who can store up and be ready for the seven years of famine. And the Pharaoh said, you're that man, Joseph. And he did. He influenced that nation. He influenced that Pharaoh. Uh, food was stored up. And not just the nation of Egypt, but all the lands were saved because of the influence, the godly influence of one man. When we were in Israel, we had an opportunity, Tam and I, we went to a place called Caesarea Maritima. It sits right on the Mediterranean Sea. Biblically, it is the place where, where Paul was last tried before he was going to go to Rome. They will sit him out on the, on the Mediterranean Sea and send him to Rome. And it's a Colosseum is there. And our guide, Miriam, she, she pointed out that out in front of the, that Colosseum were statues. Many of the statues that you may have seen as you, as you look at statues of men and women at times in, in, during Greek times. And what she pointed out that I found very interesting, she said, you can see the Christian influence by the statues. She said when it was pagan influence, the statues were nude. When the Christians were influencing the culture, the statues had clothes. And I found that interesting. And I thought that's the way it should be today. We should be able to see the Christian influence in our nation. We should be able to see the Christian influence in our homes. We should see, be able to see the Christian influence in our workplaces. There should be something different. There should be something different hanging in my office maybe that's hanging in the office next door. There should be something different in the way I talk than maybe the way the other people talk. There should be something different about my home than maybe folks who are not serving the Lord's home. There should be a Christian influence. And certainly Christianity has influenced this nation. There's a lot of debate these days about whether or not America is a Christian nation. I think the vast majority of people here identify as Christian. Whether they're really followers of Christ, I don't know. But clearly, if you look at the history of our nation, Christianity has greatly influenced. And I've got a few examples of that here. The second paragraph of our Declaration of Independence invokes rights of a creator. It reads like this. It said, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator, with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We, our, our rights come from our creator. It comes from the God of heaven who created me. And our founding fathers recognized that. Our system of government is built on Scripture. Look at Exodus 18 and 21. You'll find this interesting. As I research this, it says, Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. What happened with our politicians in this? Because that's not the people, a lot of the people who are running our country. When I read that, I thought, mm, there are some. Now, I think we should be careful. There are some. 
but there's a lot that this does not fit them. Men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands. That's your federal. Rulers of hundreds, your state. And rulers of fifties and rulers of ten, your local. Our founding fathers used the very scriptures to set our system of government. Many of our laws are built around the Ten Commandments. For many, many years, we really did honor the Sabbath. Most businesses were closed. You couldn't do certain things on Sunday. Most, there, not many people had ball games and sports with their kids, but now Sunday's just become another day. We see, we see the Christian influence starting to wane, it appears to me, from generation to generation. Marriage. Marriage between a man and a woman. Lifelong commitment. We've definitely seen that change. I've got to tell you an interesting story. Many of you know Colin, my son, is a missionary over in Africa now. And he said that one of the, the key ways that, that, the, that the Malian people, and they're mostly Muslim, one of the things they find most fascinating and is a good uh, witnessing tool to, to transition into the gospel is Christian's idea of marriage, of a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. That just is foreign to them because they can have multiple wives. And so they use that idea of Christian marriage as a, as a springboard to witness. Christ gave the analogies of the marriage with him and the church. So it, it, it can flow right in. Now, but I do have to tell you this, and you'll, boy. So in tradition, and, and they told us this, in traditional Malian customs, and so it's not practiced a lot anymore, but some. And we asked Colin and Madison, they're getting married shortly after they get back. Are they going to, since they're over in Mali, are they going to carry on traditional Malian custom? The mother-in-law goes on the honeymoon. And if they need any pointers, they're in there to help them out. True story. They're in there to help them out. I said, I'm glad, Tammy, it's, not, it's, the, it's, the, it's the bride's mother-in-law. So I said, I'm glad that's not on us. Collins had a chance to talk to a couple of those young boys, and I believe it's actually happened. And they, they're a little bashful to say that it has, and I can understand why. I'm glad that's not a custom that ever made it to the United States. But marriage, education of the 123 original colonial universities all but one were Christian faith-based, Princeton, Hale, Yale, and Harvard. They were, they were seminaries to begin with. Duke right here, seminary, Christian-based. What has happened? What has happened from generation to generation to generation? Abolition. Many Christian abolitionists, such as Charles Spurgeon and John Wesley, spoke against the evil from a scriptural standpoint of slavery. And were paramount in putting an end to it. Civil rights, lastly civil rights. A preacher by the name of Martin Luther King Jr. often stated this, a just law is, man, is a man-made code that squares with the moral law of God. Squares with it. If it don't square with the moral law of God, it's not a just code. So what happened? What, what, what's the result? What's the result if we don't have the godly influence? What, 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 what will life look like? See, most people think that it'll look better. A lot of these people who mock Christianity, they say, well, life is going to look better if we don't have all these rules that you all like to live by and this God that you like to serve. Well, I'm going to close. I want you to look at the condition that the, Egypt, that the uh, Israelites lived in under this wicked king who did not know Joseph. Look at uh, Exodus 1 and 14. And Brother Matt, I'm going to ask you and your team, if you will, to come on uh, to, the, to the podium. 
It says, And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar and brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with vigor. You get out there and talk to those men we talked to yesterday and see if life has been good for them. In and out of jail, struggling with addictions. But somewhere along the way, somehow, they thought that was going to be fun. And you can get steeped down in sin, and it might sound like it's going to be fun, but it's going to end up in just like it did with these Egyptians, in slavery, oppression, and hard living. Because when we get the further we get away from God as an individual, the further we get away from a nation, we're going to see. Amen. We're going to see. That's why Proverbs 29.2 says that when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked man rules, the people groan. I want, I want to keep our godly influence in this nation. I want to keep it in my family. I want to keep it with the people that I come in contact with. And I want to see it in our nation. And so my application point for you today, you said, what does this mean to me? It means keep that godly influence in your family. Even if it looks like you're losing it, don't, we're not going to lose. And he's not going to lose. He's not lost yet. You keep praying for your family. You keep praying for your lost loved ones. The Bible says train them up in the way they will go and they're all they won't depart from it. And you might say, well, I came to the Lord later in life. And I didn't raise my kids like I should. He also says he'll restore, restore the years that the locusts ate. Nothing's outside of his reach. I think every time I think about this like this, I think about Junius, pastor. I think about his testimony. A man who was an alcoholic for years. Mama prayed for him. You know she did. She died. Not ever seeing Junius Westbrook come to the Lord. But I can tell you right now, they're on streets of gold in the presence of Almighty God right now. They are. They are. They're never too far away. You keep praying. You keep holding on to the promises of God. Let's see what happens. My closing sentence is this. I hope we never see the day when it's said that a new president came to the United States and he knew nothing of Jesus Christ. I hope that never happens. We have godly influence. Let's influence our families. Let's influence our workplaces. Let's influence our nation. Collectively, we can influence our nation. I think we can influence our nation in how we vote. I'm not getting into politics. I really think there's too much politics in the pulpit, but I think we should get out and vote. I think we should vote principles of the Bible. I do. I'll leave that there. But to have godly influence, you've got to be a son or a daughter. See, if that plane had gone down, there would have been no, no other child that could have come and claimed the inheritance that me and Tammy were going to leave, only Hayden and Colin. And the only people who are going to claim the inheritance of heaven and all the spiritual blessings are the sons and the daughters of God. And He's made that so easy. That Holy Spirit starts to come in, it starts to draw you, it starts to pull on you, it starts to tug at you. He's calling you. If He's calling you this morning, I'm going to ask everybody if they will, just bow your head and close your eyes for a minute. If He's calling you this morning, if you feel Him tugging at you, don't turn it away. People do it, they turn away from fear and they turn away of pride. And I'm like, what are you afraid of? The Almighty God of Heaven is calling you saying, I want you in my family. I want to make you a son and a daughter. I'm going to bless you in heavenly places. I'm going to bless you here. I'm going to help you in life's issues. That's all he's doing.
And you have to sit there and decide whether or not you're going to say, yes, yes, God, I want to be part of the family. If you're here this morning and you feel the Spirit of God drawing you, this altar's open. Don't let pride and what everybody's going to might, might or might not think about you keep you from coming to the fore, coming front. I tell you one thing, when I listened to those men's testimonies yesterday, I thought, you know, I think in some of these self-help things that these guys go through, I think admitting where they are and who they are is part of the recovery. I sat down and I thought, man, if we as Christians would get around in a circle and be that honest, Brother Dan, and pour our hearts out as to where we've been and where we've struggled, life would be easier for us. But we, we hide it. I hide it. I hide it behind my suit and I hide it behind things. But one thing I wanted them to know, no one is just and no one is righteous. Every one of us are wicked. But God says, I'll take you just like you are. And I'll accept you into my family because of what Christ has done for me. That's what he says. But we have to be willing to humble ourselves and come in and recognize that we're sinners. So I'm just going to linger for one more moment and ask if you'd like to come forward. This altar is open. If you'd like to come. We believe in healing here. We believe the gifts of the Spirit are still for us today. We believe God still. And that's why I wanted, that's why it was such a blessing to be. I have no doubts in my mind that every one of those men, those seven or eight men that were yesterday, the power of God can set them free. I know that. Now, whether he chooses to do that or how he chooses, I don't know. But I know he can. But I have to be like Joseph, and they have to be like Joseph. I have to trust his providence. I have to trust his yeses, and we have to trust his noes. One of those guys in there, he said, uh, he said, I'm going to be honest. He said, the only time I call on the name of the Lord, he said, I was raised in a Christian home. The only time I call on the name of the Lord is when I'm about to go to jail. He said, when I'm out doing everything else, I'm not, I'm not going to church. I'm not doing anything. But let the, let the man come put the handcuffs on me. I'm calling for the Lord. But he was honest about it. But he'll meet him in the jail. But he's not going to keep him in the jail. Not in the, not in the spiritual jail, he's not going to keep him. He might keep him in a physical jail, but he won't keep him in the spiritual jail. And that's what we do sometimes. Let life get a little hard, man. Time to pray. Time to seek the Lord. When we're in the pit, you're going to serve him and seek him in the palace. And things are going good. I hope so. I hope so.